Isaiah chapter 55, we'll read verses 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Austin. Good to see you all today. Thanks for joining us. I found this rock in my car a couple of weeks ago, which is not an altogether unusual discovery. I've mentioned before that our four-year-old loves to collect precious artifacts and store them in my car. I'm convinced that I purchased my car not only as a means of transportation, but as a receptacle for her collectibles. So anyway, I found this rock a couple of weeks ago. Upon further inspection, discovered on the back of the rock, I understand you probably can't read it from where you are. I can from here. Written in marker, it says, Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my rock. It's an image. It's probably very familiar for many. Jesus as a rock. In fact, we are a part of a congregation that calls itself Solid Rock Church. It's sort of baked into who we are. And while that name is due in part to the fact that the church was started in 1991, you would be hard-pressed to find a more quintessentially 90s name for a church than Solid Rock. And that's fine. It's just a name. I mean, who really cares? We could even lean into that a little bit and use, you know, super distressed text font, maybe install a faux brick wall on the stage as the backdrop. It the point is, it, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's just a name so that we have a common reference point. Um, and, and to be fair, if we renamed the church in 10 years, I'm convinced we'd be having the same conversation, be saying, that name is so 2020. So it doesn't matter. It's just a name. But for us, it is meaningful for this reason. Not, it, it's not meaningful, and Kevin told me not to use this, but I'm going with it. it. It's not meaningful because Arrested Development fans have the opportunity to sing solid as a rock to one another, although there is that benefit. Its meaning is in the image that it brings to mind. Solid rock. And we can embrace that. You, you've probably noticed. Um, or maybe you've re- never really noticed because it's quite small, but our sign in the front lawn is on a slab of rock. Our logo, which you may see on the website or social media or on the kids' volunteer t-shirts, has an image of rocks or a mountain. Not because we are close to mountains geographically, not because we love the mountains, although we do, but it is a reminder that Jesus is the solid rock on which we stand, as the hymn declares. So we, we lean into it, and I actually think 
the name has a bit of staying power for that reason alone. The name is derived from a very important biblical image, the rock. Rock is used as, a, as an image repeatedly throughout the pages of our Bible, and it's used to take our minds to a variety of qualities, qualities including stability, permanence, dependability, strength. Uh, like a rock, our God is steadfast, as we sang together this morning, or we saw it in our call to worship from Psalm 18. David repeatedly refers to God as a rock, strong, stable, dependable, steadfast. Well, today as we conclude our series, working through the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus turn to this image of a rock to compare and contrast to very different approaches to life that yield drastically different qualitative outcomes. We'll pick it up in verse 24 of Matthew 7, where we read this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, keep in mind, this is at the end, the conclusion of his sermon. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It's a very familiar parable Jesus tells here, due in large part probably to the well-known children's song. Maybe you're even humming it in your head now. The rain came down, the flood came up, and the house on the rock. I think we have different translations maybe of the song. <laughs> house on the rock either stood firm or stood strong, a well-known children's song. But this story sets before our minds two hypothetical builders one who is wise, one who is foolish. The wise one, we are told, builds on something that is strong, immovable, something steady, like a rock. The other one builds on something that shifts, something that moves quite easily when an outside force is applied, something, say, like sand. When construction of these two houses is complete, not much would distinguish the dwellings, they may even look very similar on the outside in appearance. The difference is only discovered the day a terrible storm passes over with fierce winds, rising floodwaters, and only one of the houses survives that onslaught. The house built on a firm foundation withstands. The house built on sand collapses, and great is its collapse. The lesson or the warning is that our lives are, in fact, being built on some sort of a foundation. Whether we are cognizant of this reality or not, our lives are being built 
on a foundation. And that foundation is either something steadfast and stable or something that will be tossed around when tested. It's a very simple idea. The, the point Jesus makes, I think, is fairly straightforward, especially when compared to some of his other parables. But I think there's the danger that the simplicity of this story's principle would weaken its importance in our minds. I mean, it's pretty basic. It's a children's song, for goodness sake. I'm, I'm ready to move on from the spiritual milk to solid foods. I'm, I'm ready for those much more weighty theological insights and debates. But I, I want to suggest that this simple principle is the principle upon which the entirety of the spiritual life is built. If the foundation is not solid, eventually the structure of our lives begins to falter. The point, be aware of that. Be aware that you are building your life on a foundation and use wisdom in how you approach that process. Make sure the foundation is solid. Right at the beginning of this little story, we, we find sort of a, a two-step process. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and everyone who does them. That's the one who is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Building on a solid foundation spiritually at minimum requires two very important steps. We hear the words of Jesus. Our minds go immediately to the sermon that he has delivered that we've been working through. We hear the words of Jesus and we do them. Now the second step in that process, the doing the words of Jesus, that is what we focused on two weeks ago with the reminder that mental assent alone, uh, sound orthodox doctrine, Cognitive belief, even verbal profession, while important parts of the discipleship process, those are not the end of discipleship. If we aren't doing the words of Jesus, if we aren't following in his footsteps, if we aren't being formed into his image, belief and faith lose much of their meaning theologically. We hear the words, yes, but we also do them. We align the details of our lives with the ethic Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the sec second step that Jesus points to, and probably the one that receives much of the attention when looking at this text, and rightfully so. I mean, in the story, Jesus highlights two individuals who both hear the words of Jesus. So hearing the words of Jesus alone is not sufficient or doesn't necessarily guarantee a proper response. Jesus spends much of chapter 7 warning about that danger. But still, what I want to focus on today, hearing the words, first step in that process of building on a strong foundation remains an important component of our discipleship that cannot be overlooked from a place of apathy. In fact, to even begin to hope to do what Jesus says, to even begin to hope to enter his kingdom with our whole selves requires that, that we hear, that we think about, that we seek to understand what it is Jesus has called us to. 
It's a crucial step in the process of building on a solid foundation. And it's not a one-time affair. It's not a box that we can check off and move to the more critical matters of the faith. I want to suggest that in order to build on a strong spiritual foundation, we must be willing to alter our lives in whatever way needed to routinely put ourselves in a position to encounter Jesus himself, to encounter his words, to encounter his people, the church, and to encounter, again, our purpose as participants in his kingdom. We must put ourselves in a position to encounter Jesus himself, his words, his people, the church, and our vocation as his followers. Without practices, routines, habits that permeate our lives, and attune us again and again to the various ways in which these encounters become a reality. Without practices and routines, I think we will eventually find that we are building on ground that gives way. We might not find that out today. It may take years to discover that. You know, in a, in a dry environment, not altogether unlike the one in and around the Sea of Galilee, sand or other unstable soil might appear on the surface to be very solid. It seems like an okay, to go, a, a, a okay place to go ahead and build a structure. Seems pretty solid until it is drenched with water and what appeared to be solid is revealed to be quite pliable. Similarly, the, the importance of habitually building our lives with Jesus as our rock that might be minimized in our thinking because the alternatives don't necessarily seem all that bad. They don't seem all that different on the surface. I can go ahead and build over here because it seems like fine soil to build on. I can build on any soil I want, really, and I can always keep Jesus in my back pocket as a cool party trick or as a lifeline in an emergency. I think a life that is built on a solid foundation is one that begins to recognize the spiritual significance, the holy meaning of every moment in our lives. A life that recognizes that, that everything I engage in, even the most mundane, every activity I participate in, every life pattern I adopt, it is all contributing to a foundation of some sort, even if I'm not aware of that. But it is building the foundation of my life. And that foundation is one that will either remain firm in the midst of a storm or one that will eventually collapse. If you want to contribute to something that is going to be solid, if you want to build on something strong, you must be willing to consistently invest in things that are unnoticed. I mean, that's the nature of a foundation. We, we don't see them. Invest in things that are unnoticed and mundane, maybe even a bit boring. It requires routine and practices that are not exciting. It requires patience. It requires a long view. This is one of our prayers with 
practicing the way. Uh, as we explore these various spiritual practices and really slow down and camp in one of those practices for a prolonged period, our hope and prayer is that in pursuing these lifelong practices, implementing them with the long view that we might be building a solid foundation of trust and life in Jesus Christ that is able to withstand the storms. Whether those storms come in the form of trials in life, or maybe the shifting sands of cultural values, whatever those storms, however they present themselves, we hope to adopt practices that put us in a place to routinely encounter Jesus, to hear his words again and again, to encounter his life, to feast at this table week after week, to dwell with his body, that we might be shaped into his image. And I think this is a key to a sustained faith, one that remains after the storm passes. Now, there's a couple of things in this story that I think are worth noticing as we think about this image of a house built on a rock. The first one is simply that it did not fall. That's really it. It's basically all we're told about the house that's built on the rock. The promise is survival, withstanding the rain and the winds and the flood. It's not a promise that the value of the home is going to skyrocket on Zillow. So we're really going to increase our profit when we go to sell that house. It's not that it's going to be so beautifully well-appointed that everybody's going to marvel at our aesthetic. Those are not the promises. You know, it can always be frustrating to spend, it, for me anyway, it can be really frustrating to spend money on home maintenance that doesn't change the aesthetics at all. Spending thousands of dollars on something that needs to be done but won't be noticed by anybody makes me cringe. It is, of course, necessary for the long-term health of the house. Could think about it this way. You may remember when we built this sanctuary that we're sitting in today. Early in that process, when they first started moving the dirt around the build site, right under where you all are sitting, uh, they discovered that in places on this build site, there were several feet, feet, not inches, several feet of topsoil, which, of course, is not a great place to build a structure. So they had to remove all of that topsoil and replace it with something firm, something solid. That process was frustrating. It added considerable time delays to the project. It added considerable expense to the project. But that process is the only reason we are sitting, well, you're sitting, I'm standing, but the only reason we're in a room today and we don't feel like we're in grandfather's mansion at Silver Dollar City, everybody's sliding to one side of the room. What, one other thing to note. So it survives, it stands, which I think leads us to another point. It is survival of the house in the midst of a storm. The promise is not that the house would be spared from the storm. 
There is, of course, the temptation to think that if I engage in all of these spiritual practices, those practices must make God really happy with me, really connecting in an important way. And if God is really happy with me, then surely he is going to save me or insulate me from all difficulty and trouble. I think everybody, if you've lived longer than five minutes, you know that's not realistic. It's not true. And it's not what Jesus promises. Dale Bruner put it this way. He said, obedience to Jesus' words is not so much protection from troubles as protection in them. Just as rock under a house does not shield from storms, but supports during them. The rock, the foundation we build on, isn't a barrier that prevents the rain from beating against the freshly painted walls on the exterior of the house. It isn't a barrier that keeps the wind from rattling the windows. The elements still pummel the structure. The storm that inevitably comes is still frightening and concerning. There are still noticeable effects to the structure. Months of cleanup may await after the storm passes. I think this is really important for us to keep in mind. I don't think we can return to this truth too often. This from Jesus is not a call to grit our teeth, put our heads down, power through, pretend that we are unaffected by the storm. I, I don't need anybody's help because I have God on my side. My foundation is Jesus. So I don't want to give the appearance to anybody else that I have been negatively impacted by the storm that has just hit. And if I acknowledge this mess, well, maybe I'm downplaying God's sustaining power in my life. Maybe I'm ignoring his ongoing presence. So if a, if a couple of shingles blew off the house in the storm, I need to rush out in the morning, clean that up before the neighbors awaken. Or if the neighbor's trampoline blew into my wall and knocked some paint off or some of the siding off, I've got to go out, clean that up, make sure it looks pristine by the time the neighbors arrive. So it appears as though God buffered me from the storm. That is not what this image implies. And maybe we find in this story the subtle reminder that the spiritual life is not about image management. You know, if we want to stretch this building metaphor even further, it, it is possible to have a clean and beautifully decorated home inside, fresh paint and a perfectly manicured lawn outside, and still have termites eating away at the bones of the house, destroying structural integrity, making it unsafe to occupy. Image management or maintenance is completely unhelpful in the Christian life, but it can be a very tempting and even effective means of avoiding the areas of internal decay that need some attention. Because I've slapped some paint on it, it looks fine. It's much easier and cheaper to slap a coat of paint on something or to cover a moldy wall with some shiplap than it is to address the real problem. But image management or maintenance will not eradicate the issue. 
In fact, it might give cover that allows the real issue to only grow worse. Everyone who hears these words and does them, that is the one who's wise, building on a solid foundation. New Testament theologian Robert Mulholland, who taught at Asbury Seminary for several decades, he wrote this that I think captures some of where I'm hoping to lead us today. He said this, it should be obvious by now that putting on the new nature is far more radical than attitude adjustments and behavior modifications. The life hidden with Christ in God is one of such growing union with God in love that God's presence becomes the context of our daily life. God's purposes become the matrix of our activities, and the values of God's kingdom shape our life and relationships. God's living presence becomes the ground of our identity, the source of our meaning, the seat of our value, and the center of our purpose. God's presence becoming the context of our daily life. Hearing the words, doing them, encountering Jesus himself, his words, his people, and our vocation as his followers. I think one of the reasons this is such a helpful an important warning at the end of the sermon is that it reminds us again as we bring this to a close to evaluate again who we are in Jesus Christ, who we are becoming. It reminds us again of the realities of God's kingdom that we are called to both accept but also enter. We're reminded that this is not a easy, an easy path that we are on. There are a variety of threats to the stability of our faith. And so we want to be a people who recognize the importance and the spiritual significance of every moment, every interaction, every activity and pattern we develop in our lives because we are building a foundation. And that foundation may not seem all that important today, but if we take the long view, it is incredibly important and will determine in part whether our faith remains firm or whether it collapses. If our lives are built on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his death, resurrection, and ascension, his reign over all of creation, we can remain steadfast in the midst of adversity, not because of our strength, but because our lives are hidden with God in Jesus Christ. I want to wrap this series up, actually, in the same way we started the series, by reciting the Beatitudes together. Reciting the Beatitudes as a reminder of the nature of God's kingdom. This is the kingdom we enter. This is the kingdom we daily accept and live into. Would you stand with me as we, as, as by way of invitation to the table, recite the Beatitudes together, reminding ourselves that we are a part of a different kingdom. We are a part of a kingdom that is upside down, 
a kingdom in which, as we declare, beginning in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of your dearly beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we, your humble servants, celebrate here today and make before you with these holy gifts the memorial your son commanded us and invited us to make. We remember in this meal his blessed passion and precious death. But we also take our minds to his mighty resurrection, his ascension and reign as king, and his promise to come again. We pray that in this meal we might encounter you again. We open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, asking that you would nourish us through the bread and the cup, even in ways that we are unaware of our need for your nourishment. We open ourselves to encounter you. Amen. I invite you to the table. We'll make two lines down these.